Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 3rd of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Then government, Fianna Fáil, is determined to work with others to show the Irish people that the biggest challenges can be met and overcome. Real and sustained progress demands that you just don't look for headlines, but that you look for credible solutions. The Fianna Fáil leader, Micheál Martin, speaking to his party's Ord Esh in uh, the Three Arena, highlighting how he believes that, unlike opposition parties, Fianna Fáil is a party of substance. We will continue to work with our partners to meet urgent new challenges. We know the impact which rising prices are having on families and business and we will continue to provide help. The Taoiseach signalled how this government has held office during wartime on the European continent and on foot of a global pandemic, but also how some of the biggest challenges have yet to be realised. When our full mandate is completed, we will show real progress for the Irish people. A new era of social and affordable housing, healthcare which is more accessible and affordable, investment in childcare and education, support for strong communities, moving from words to action on a shared island. For Fianna Fáil, this remains our challenge and our commitment. An Ireland which stands proudly in the world and listens to its people's concerns, which fights divisive policies, supports its weakest citizens, values education, empowers enterprise, now and always putting action first and serving all of our people. The Taoiseach and leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil party, Micheál Martin, speaking to his uh, party's Ordesh over the weekend. Let's speak now to the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnellogue, who's on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, on foot of uh, the Ordesh. And a, a very upbeat-sounding Taoiseach, uh, despite all of the challenges that lie ahead. Yeah, good morning, Michael. And uh, certainly the Taoiseach was uh, upbeat and uh, it was a positive and constructive Ardash. And I think um, party members from right across the country were um, uh, energised to come together, actually, to reflect on the last two years that we've had in government um, and the challenges which we're seeking to address and indeed the progress which we're making and to look at the year ahead and the next couple of years ahead as well in terms of how we can continue to, to try and tackle some of the biggest issues facing Irish society, such as housing and making progress in health and improving public services. And also the importance uh, in that of maintaining and uh, protecting the economy as well to provide 
as the platform and support businesses, support enterprise providers with the platform to actually be able to, to do that work. So uh, overall, uh, um, it was a, a very constructive uh, two days uh, for the party and um, the real objective now, working with our governor, government partners over the next number of weeks and months is to follow through in relation to the key budget um, decisions we made last week and also then to continue the really important work um, of actually delivering consistent progress uh, for the public. Yeah, well, it was a, a greater opportunity for any political party to have 11 billion euro to inject into the economy. And listening to Michal Martin speaking there, uh, it's hard uh, to think of what else could be on a, a wish list. Music to the ears of, of many uh, and saying all the right things. But it, it's clear, on the other hand, uh, that people are obviously not listening or they don't believe what he's saying. Certainly, if you go by the opinion poll in the Sunday Independent yesterday with Fianna Fáil on 17% and Sinn Féin 20 points ahead on 37%. Yeah, well, I, I think as Michael Martin always says himself, um, to be become fixated in opinion polls in any way is an absolute mistake for parties and government. Uh, really what you'd, be decided, what you'd be judged on when it would come to the next election is how competent you were, the progress that you made and your capacity to continue that if you, if you were to get a renewed mandate. So that's very much, you know, we don't get distracted by that. We very much focus on actually continuing um, to keep moving on the key key issues that would, would, would are you, facing society. Would you have performed better in the last general election uh, had you been focused on public opinion because uh, the last time round uh, was a huge disappointment for Fianna Fáil. I, I think you expected to romp home, did you not? You, you, can, ne- you can never predict an election, Michael, and we did come back as the largest party after the last election and uh, it was, you know, this particular Ardesh was the first I've been on TD for 11 years. It's the first time I've attended the and Ardesh, where we've actually been in government, and certainly I know from our party members, always uh, want to actually uh, be in government so we can actually make progress and we can actually deal with the difficult issues that are there, make the difficult challenges, mm. and step those forward. But okay, but another you, you, point you, you, just I would make on the make on polls. Listen, there's there's a big variety of them out there, but um, there's there's a big differential between those polls which are conducted and, to, and by online mm. online means compared to those that are face-to-face and certainly in relation to... I know, to but they are reflected in some of the other polls, aren't they, in the Red Sea polls? And, and I think if you, if you look at the face-to-face polls, um, it's showing the party having strengthened considerably the last year, the most recent face-to-face polls. Uh, poll in the Irish Times had us at 24%. Um, so, but there's big variations there. And the, then the other thing I think we all know, Michael, is um, when it comes close to an election campaign, uh, the public really focus on their decision and who they're going to put into government. And really mm. um, the key key focus for us as a government and as a party in government is to work on making real progress on the issues that are there. And ultimately mm. that's what will put us in the best position to seek uh, a renewed mandate from the public then in due course. I, I think people expected Fianna Fáil to do better, though, in the last uh, election because of uh, the previous administration's uh, record on housing and the promises that Fianna Fáil was making in relation to housing. Having said that, we're in a situation today... Uh, where the number of people who are homeless in the country is at its highest ever. It is, and it's, and it's absolutely unacceptable that we don't have sufficient um, accommodation for the people, for every family and every person in our country, Michael. This is the number one um, issue facing the government. It's our number one priority in government. It's the reason we were so committed to going into government. And uh, what we have is a, a very, very comprehensive plan and strategy, the Housing for All strategy, which deals with and brings to the table all of the key levers that are needed mm. to actually um, ad- address the housing challenge. And while there's many... But the government has failed to spend €240 million Euro, uh, this year, hasn't it? There's going to be 200, there's 240 million euro allocated in the budget to deal with homelessness specifically. But listen, while there's 
number different issues which feed into no, out, uh, out of the existing allocation 240 million has gone unspent I mean it really the proof is in the pudding and the proof if you like is the worst homeless figures ever 10,805 people with no place to call a home 3,220 children in that situation it's shameful isn't it it is absolutely shameful that, that, that we don't have a home for everyone in the country. And that's why the government is taking every step we possibly can to increase supply. Because it is supply of new houses, Michael, which is going to address this issue and ensure that we have enough homes to provide a home for every family and every person in the country. So why so then did the government make, let me, if you can, make if you the building finish, of homes more if you expensive? Me, if, you can, if you can let me finish my, my point, Michael. We've come from a situation just a few short years ago where there was seven and 8,000 new homes being built per year to a situation now this year where we have 25,000 new homes being built. And the m- most unprecedented and the largest um, public investment in, in social housing ever in the history of the state is underway. Over the next um, number of years, uh, we are going to build that up to 40,000 houses per year. Unfortunately, you can't wave a, wave a magic wand, Michael, and make it all happen overnight. It has to be, but it has to go as fast as it possibly can over the last year. We've seen 20,000 additional workers into the construction sector. We're seeking to increase the capacity of the sector through investment and through skills to actually deliver new homes. And ultimately, that is the way we're going to deal with this. But it is month on month, Michael, we're making progress. Um, and it is the key focus in the government. And we are the only, the, the Housing for All strategy, which Minister Dara O'Brien has brought forward, is the only comprehensive strategy in terms of how we can deal with this. The key issue we're all focused on is actually implementing that. And if you look at it in terms of the, the, the building of new houses, uh, that's the, the commitment is there to do that and the progress is being made on it, but also then in relation to helping and enabling people to get their first home. So the Help to Buy scheme, for example, which can help uh, a new uh, couple looking to buy their home. Socially regressive 30, scheme. 30,000 30, euro of a deposit. From Socially regressive scheme, Minister. Paid. Over over the la- over the last number of years, also the shared equity schemes to help ca- to help families as well get on, uh, get their first property. There is a range of supports in place now, but all of that is dependent on con- continuing to increase the level of supply, and that's the key focus of the government. Yeah, but we've been told for sure. long over a, a decade now uh, that you can't solve this problem overnight, and here we are, uh, and it, it appears to be getting worse. Uh, the housing for all scheme has uh, many greater ambitions, but continue fails to meet its own I, targets I, uh, and the cost the cost well that's a fact minister the cost of housing uh, has increased because of specific actions that this government took in the budget just gone with a 10% levy on concrete uh, first of all, I don't agree that it's not delivering. The Housing for All strategy is delivering. Um, the investment is there, the policy levers is there, and the drive is there to increase supply. And it is it has been increasing year and year. Unfortunately, it has come from way too low a base a number of years ago. But the reason Fianna Fáil got into government two years ago, the reason we saw the housing department uh, was actually to deliver on this. And as, as you say yourself, um, it, it does take time, but the government is actually delivering on that day by day, month by month, and will continue to do so. Um, in relation to the concrete levy, obviously, I, I know in, in Meath, um over the years, the significant issue that you had with pyrite homes, um, and, and, uh, and also that's a, there's been a real issue in my own county and indeed a number of other counties in, re, in recent years in relation to MICA and pyrite as well. Um, whenever the government um, published the MICA scheme, the MICA pyrite scheme, to actually support families uh, to get their homes fixed, which is absolutely essential, um, three or four, a couple of months ago, um, it was made clear that that would be done through a levy um, to actually help support and help fund that. 
Um, the assessment uh, is that that would add about half a percent, around half a percent to the cost of a home. I suppose the bottom line, Michael, is um, you have to fund measures um, whenever you have uh, to take uh, an intervention as strong as what we're doing in relation to the necessary help that families that have Mike and Pirate need. Um, you need to fund that as well. And that is the, the reason for that particular proposal. And in terms of the application of it, that's something that will be considered in the context of the legislation which will be introduced to to to, uh, to bring that in over the course of the early part of next year. OK, and do you believe that the levy and the compensation that is paid to homeowners in your constituency, Minister, will be enough to appease them to the extent that you'll be able to uh, win your seat back? Well, listen, it's not about winning my seat or anything, and it's about actually delivering for the people who are affected by this. And I'm absolutely confident of the scheme, um, which I've worked with Minister um, Darrell Bryan on, um, to, to deliver, and indeed which the government across the board and across all parties have a massive commitment behind. I believe it is absolutely a really strong one, which will ensure over the months and years ahead that every homeowner will be able to get their home fixed. Um, the key issue now is the implementation and the delivery of it. Uh, over the last, since the first scheme was introduced two years ago to now, we've just had 14 homes fixed with 50 underway and with several hundred which need approval to get going. And that's my key focus now in relation to working and ensuring that the County Council, um, uh, who are the delivery agent at the moment, and also the housing agency who will be taking it over, um, that they are working to expedite applications and we actually see the funding drawn down homes fixed. But I certainly, in relation to the scheme that's there, I believe it's very strong and will deliver the support that these homeowners very much need and uh, uh, to get their lives back and ho- on track and their homes fixed. Okay, many people think that you'll suffer as a, a consequence uh, that uh, 100% compensation wasn't being paid uh, to those people in Donegal uh, who suffered because of what the industry, what the quarries did to them. And many young first-time buyers will be saying, why is it I'm being asked to foot the bill? Well, I, I think the scheme is, is unprecedented in its nature anywhere in the world previously. Um, and it is based on up-to-date um, costings, which were assessed by the Charter Surveyors of Ireland, um, and which will be updated. The legislation provides that for that to be updated every year. I'm very confident that we'll see the cost of uh, homes um, uh, uh, covered, of, of, of new buildings covered. Also, alongside that, there will be the capacity to draw down uh, energy funding for uh, for for modern fitting um, in terms of uh, uh, energy through the, the SESI or through the... Mm. Um, S-E-A-I, um, to ensure that homes are built to a modern standard as well. So I think overall it's a really strong scheme. The key objective I have, Michael, is actually ensuring that actually it delivers and we see we see homes fixed. And then uh, that's the, a big issue in Donegal, obviously mm-hmm. Mayo, a few other counties, but across the board, um, when you look at their situation nationally, housing is our number one objective and it is our number one priority every day in office. Okay. We are making real progress on it. Um, but the one way we're going to solve it across the board is actually be delivering supply and every lever the government can bring to the table has been brought to the table to actually um, to actually deliver on that. But it's odd to hear you saying that when it's reported that you were told as a member of the Cabinet last week uh, that the targets for new affordable homes will fall significantly short of the Housing for All targets and that social housing is off target as well. Well, we, we have set very ambitious targets which we are working to actually deliver on in every way we can. Now, if you look at uh, where, we, where we've got to, um, we've had the highest number of home commencements um, since 2008 last year, the highest number of planning commissions, 
um, uh, since 2008 last year. Uh, the new schemes that we've introduced in terms of dealing with derelict properties and bringing them back into mm. up to €50,000 for somebody to make a derelict property into their home, either in a town, village or in the countryside, very, very significant support there as well. And, and then in terms of uh, building up to 10,000 social homes mm. per year, Again, um, a very significant um, progress being made in that. Um, we well, can't make you it may quick say enough. that, we but we have You may say that, Minister, but people, people listening to us now no, know there's a housing crisis. They know um, that uh, the cost of buying a house has become unaffordable for many and that the government just made it worse last week and are asking why is it that young buy, uh, house, uh, first-time buyers will have to foot the bill uh, for the MICA problem or, indeed, uh, farmers are up in arms, as I'm sure you're acutely aware uh, about this concrete levy as the Minister for Agriculture? Well, I think everyone also understands, Michael, that the one way we're going to bring house prices down um, and that we're going to address the housing crisis is by um, by ramping up the building of new ones and ramping up the building of supply. And that is something that this program has made on every month and every year, um, and very significantly so since uh, Fianna Fáil entered government two years ago and introduced the, the Housing for All strategy and the unprecedented investment that's going with that. That's what will actually bring down prices. Um, in the meantime, we are working then to support families, young couples, to get in the property ladder through the range of measures which I, which I mentioned there, um, and, and also then um, if supporting local authorities to build the largest number of social housing um, that, we, that the country has seen ever. Um, so, listen, uh, the, the point you make in relation to the concrete levy, the estimate is that that could be half a percent in relation to the price of a new home. I w- when you look at new homes, for example, at the moment, about one quarter of new homes are timber frame. Um, so and that's that's growing all the time, which 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 uh, um, which avoids the need for um, uh, the concrete um, in relation to agriculture, which I understand the, the concerned farmers have in relation to that, because certain agricultural projects um, can be concrete intensive. Um, I have uh, initiated a review of our um, of our um, TAMS or on farm investment scheme to update the costings um, in that regard as well. Also, in the most recent budget, among the many other supports that I brought in to support the agricultural community in relation to the fodder scheme, for example, the tillage scheme, and also the various new cap schemes which will be in place next year, such as the new beef scheme, which is paying 150 euro per per, per cow, um, and a new environmental scheme. One of the things I also did was I introduced cap- accelerated capital allowances for investment in new slurry storage facilities, which again is going to be a very significant support um, to farmers to be able to actually go about making investment there. So, um, listen, across the board, the government is being um, measured and balanced in what we do, trying to make real progress across the key issues that are facing uh, our communities and different sectors of our economy. And I think uh, the, the, the approach that the government has taken okay. the budget is... And just to, ju- ju- just to conclude, uh, uh, going into the future, would you like Michal Martin to continue leading your party and uh, would you like your leader then to become thonished uh, to Mary Lou MacDonald as uh, Taoiseach? Absolutely. Um, believe that, uh, and, and look forward to Michal Martin continuing as our leader and indeed to um, leading us into the next general election. Um, so that the party uh, and Fianna Fáil will put him forward for re-election as Taoiseach of the country. I believe he's, he has shown his mettle and his capacity to lead, his capacity to deal with real challenging issues, both at national and international level, and make real progress. And uh, I think uh, he has been an exceptional Taoiseach over the last two years. And I think um, as we continue to deliver in our programme for government over the next two years, and when we get to the next election campaign, I believe there'll be nobody better placed uh, to actually um, uh, take over as Taoiseach again, the Michael Martin, and certainly um, that's uh, the, I look forward to supporting him in that. But 
key thing in the meantime is supporting supporting him in the massively important work of making progress across all the issues affecting uh, Irish society, housing, health, mm. um, and the, uh, the, the, cost of, the cost of living challenges we have. The cost of living challenges we have. My my, my objective next time will, will be to to run on the platform of the progress that we have made it, but more importantly, we'll continue to make over the next two years. Mm and to seek to put forward uh, Michael Martin as Taoiseach, and then to assess, uh, coming out of that then, um, what, any, what any outcome of an election would be. Okay, so uh, you wouldn't be ruling out a uh, coalition with Sinn Féin? I think we're a long, long way from the next general election, and I think whatever the decision and whatever the verdict of the public uh, make at that stage will be something that all parties will have to deal with at that stage. Mm. Um, but that's well down the road, um, uh, Michael, and okay. our key objective now is actually to deliver on our mandate, which we got at the last election, which we're just about halfway through. Okay. Um, it it which, is interesting, which, Minister, which, though, because Fianna Fáil had firmly ruled out Sinn Féin uh, in the last election. Yeah, and the, we, that, that is correct. And, and the next election hasn't even started. We're actually yeah. delivering on the mandate. Um, and I think the key thing we put forward in the last election was actually what we would do ourselves if we get into government. And uh, that's our focus at the moment, and that's okay. what we're working on. All right. Minister, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's the Minister for Agriculture, Food and uh, the Marine, Fianna Fáil TD for Donegal, Charlie McConnellogue. Michael Reed on LMFM. Ireland, it seems, is uh, to face some significant fines if uh, turf cutting is not brought to an end under the Habitats uh, Directive in uh, the course of the next two months. Let's speak to Independent TD for Kerry, Michael Healy Ray. A very good morning to you and thanks for joining us as always on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, This came as a, a bit of a surprise to people, it seems, last week. Well, I suppose if you look at what's happening around the rest of Europe, right, and if you take, for example, what the Germans are doing at present, right, the Germans are opening up the coal mines in the face of the ever-increasing energy um, crisis, and I would suppose the the security or lack of security of energy uh, into Germany and into the rest of Europe because of what is happening in the war in the Ukraine, and the whole issue of the Russian uncertainty. But to think that at a time when all of that is happening, and when a country uh, that is as industrious as uh, Germany is coming along and deciding, right, now is not a good time to keep our coal mines shut. We'll open them up and we'll use that as a source of energy. Uh, to think that we are saying to people here, uh, not only can you not cut turf in certain bogs, but mm. we're also doing, whether people forget it or not, and remember this is backed and supported by the people who've lost rural Ireland, and that is the Greens, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, whereby there's a ban on selling turf uh, from certain outlets uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Pile of people don't realise that that's actually going to happen, that the local supplier who's operating out of a petrol station and if they're selling a bag of turf, well, it'll be illegal. Mm. Now, I'm sure the people that supported that will see how proud they'll be of that decision when they'll go knocking on the doors. Because that cuts very close to the people's hearts. And whether you're a person who actually burdens turf or not, the majority of people actually like to see having people to have the right to burn turf. Okay. But if you go back, go back to your original point about Germany, we're in a very different position than Germany, aren't we, in terms of reliance on uh, Russian gas? Uh, and uh, there could be blackouts for all in Germany unless they act. Uh, we're not in that position. But hold on one second, Michael. I'd like to remind you of the facts. We are reliant on England and on France 
because mm. of the fact that our crowd here thought it was nonsensical to have an LNG facility above in Tabot, which was obviously the right thing to do. And anybody that will stand back and look at that political decision in the 2016 programme for government, uh, it was a, a case that the government wanted to have an LNG. They flipped, flopped then for the Greens and they came along and said, no, not only would they not have it in the programme for government, but they would actively say that they wouldn't have it and they wouldn't allow it. And uh, and at the same time, then leave mm. us totally reliant okay. on these other countries. Okay. Which is and, wrong, Mike. And, and you're uh, expressing a, an opinion that a, a lot of people would share, but there's an awful lot of people who would disagree with you uh, and just don't like anything that's in any way associated with fracking. But you see, again, where did you get that idea from Only from listening to other people talking? It's like, Michael, if a person tells something that's untrue or not factual, it's not acceptable for somebody else to repeat it. People have been saying that the LNG facility would be using frack gas. And they keep saying that. The people that are against a facility, they keep saying that. I think I think and the last time I spoke to you, 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 you conceded that there would be no guarantee that it, it wouldn't use uh, fracked gas. <laughs> But there's no guarantee that it would be fracked gas either. It wouldn't have to be fracked gas. Well, if it could be guaranteed that it wouldn't be fracked gas, it would be a different proposal. But you see, that's not what the government said. If you look what the government said, it wasn't because of fracking. It was because they just would not support a facility like that at that location. And I think they were wrong. I think time will prove them to be wrong. You must remember that it was geniuses in government one time, for example, attacked the beet industry. The beet industry was a great cash crop for farmers. At a certain time of the year, it was great. Who destroyed it? Politicians. What do they all admit now? Oh, sorry about that. That was actually wrong. We shouldn't have done that. If you look at another political decision, the rural rail network throughout the country. We had a massive infrastructure throughout Ireland, a rural rail network. A political decision was made tear it up, rip it asunder, uh, allow development to take place along that piece of infrastructure to ensure it could never again be used or never again opened. You couldn't afford to open it anyway. And what are they doing now? They're coming along now and making walkways and cycleways and, and pathways, in many cases, along where the rail network was. Mm. If that infrastructure had been held from a tourism and from a, a general infrastructural point of view, it would have been priceless, valueless. You couldn't have put a value on what it would actually cost to replace it. And uh, and at the same time, it was geniuses in government. Sometimes politicians make decisions that when you stand back and look at them, not only are they bad, not only mm. are they wrong, not yeah. only are they against people, but of they're cor- stupid. Of course, but they're but they're not always bad or stupid for that matter. Well, and well, I, I, I don't I don't think I, I don't think anybody would argue uh, that uh, destroying uh, the bogs in this country would be good for the environment. Well, I think, but maybe and look, if people disagree with me, isn't that great? That's why we live in a democracy. But when I think of the people back over the years, going back in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s and the 60s, the people that worked in Bornemona, yeah. Bornemona, there was never a, a, a sort of a body that I had much respect, as much respect for as I had for Bornemona. If you knew how good they were, they built houses in many instances for their workers. Mm. They, took, they took in people at 14 and 15 years of age and trained them to be welders, fitters, mechanics. 
They, they, but they what about the bogs? Are you not surprised? You're not arguing that uh, cutting turf is good for the environment, uh, and no, I'm sure no. you wouldn't uh, disagree that the environment would be all the better uh, because of uh, maintaining uh, and uh, keeping uh, bogs at their current levels in this country. Okay, well, I would say to the Greens, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, the decision that they made ensured, for instance, that we don't harvest uh, peat anymore. So we have a horticultural industry that employs 20 to 30,000 people a year. They forgot about that industry. They forgot about horticulture. They forgot about that one of the main ingredients of it is peat. So after a while, then, people woke up to the realisation that, oh, what are we going to do now without peat? Oh, so we'll import it. So we'll import it. Now, happily, it's coming into the north. You could imagine the carbon footprint of that. Instead of having our own peat, we'll import it. So then they also decided we'll dismantle <clears throat> our uh, our uh, peat briquette making uh, stations. So what are we doing now for briquettes? We're still burning briquettes, but we're importing them. So imagine the carbon footprint of a bale of briquettes. Instead of having our jobs here in Ireland, instead of having our manufacturing uh, uh, facilities, manufacturing bales of briquettes, we're importing them. So And where are we importing them from? From the Germans. So the only people that I can see that are smart and winning in this uh, affair is the Germans. They're laughing all the way to the bank with us because we are so stupid and we are so foolish that we decided to save the world by shutting down Bornemona, by shutting down our bogs. It's a sin to think of our bogs, what they call being re-wetted. Re-wetted, in other words, is we gave years and decades Mm. and people broke their backs drawing them and putting in drains, water pumps to dry mm, them out. Mm, to burn what are we it, yeah. doing now? Mm. We're re-wetting yeah. them. I'll, I, and in time, in time... Because really when they're re-wetted, they act as a, a sponge in the environment uh, and yeah. take out a, an awful lot of carbon. Uh, and you're not arguing against the environmental benefits of bogs in the country, are you? No, but what I would and tell you is... Are, are, are you arguing that it's good yeah. to cut them for the environment? Michael, what I will tell you, and this is a fact... If we do, took every man, woman and child out of Ireland and if we abandoned it, if we left it after us and if we went somewhere else, it would make absolutely no difference whatsoever to the world's environment. It would make no difference because mm. there, a couple of factories over in China would do more harm to the in emissions okay, okay, than we okay, would okay. Uh, imagine. And imagine that that kind that kind of that, that, that sounds to me like you're giving up the argument on uh, on an environmental basis. No, no, uh, but, no, but, but, I'm but, but you're, well, like, t- are you going to stand up a, a, against this uh, directive uh, being implemented? Well, all I can tell you is. Did you ever feel like you were trying to keep out the tide when you have Fianna Fáil and when you have Fine Gael dancing to the Greens tune and they're in government and when you see what they have done to the people of Ireland, they robbed them in taxes, they gave a budget in the other day giving them back some of the money that they're already after taking from them and they're trying to convince people that they're great but unfortunately the day of reckoning will be coming and like I say they've lost rural Ireland they've lost the confidence of rural Ireland and they hate being told that by the way Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment thank you indeed uh, as always for joining us uh, today Independent TD for Kerry Michael Healy Ray 
Michael Reed on LMFM. You hear Michael Healy Ray saying there that they gave it to you with one hand in the budget, but it's soon going to be taken back by another hand. Uh, Well, that certainly would seem to be the case in terms of what the government is doing uh, to help people offset the cost of energy this year. That's if you look at the analysis from Active Retirement Ireland. And none of us will really know, will we, until the bills come in and we can sort of uh, balance one against the other. But Active Retirement Ireland is saying that the fuel allowance would need to be doubled if it was to have any real impact on the day-to-day lives of older people. Let's speak to Peter Kavanagh, who's Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Uh, That's a a significant increase. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, we've seen increases of about 92% on average on most electricity and gas bills over the last 12 months. And I think anybody listening in will have felt the pinch already with two increases this year uh, on their utilities. And the point of the, the statement basically is that the fuel allowance, which wasn't increased in the budget, and certainly the thresholds were, were broadened and more people will be able to access it. And that is, of course, a good thing. But the fact of the matter is it's going to be about half as effective in terms of purchasing power as it was last year. So as we head into a winter that it, it might be cold, mm. it might be mild, we don't know. That's always the the, 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 uh, the unknowable mm. about mm. this. Mm. It's just, it's very, very clear that people are not going to be able to afford as much natural gas or home heating oil or solid fuel as they were this time last year. But if you take into account, as they say in the round, uh, all the one-off measures and uh, the increase in the the pension, uh, it'll go a long way, uh, I think, will it not, to helping people combat the cost of living? I think all of the uh, all of the uh, one-off measures and the increase in the pension of €12 Euros, uh, will go a long way towards meeting the increase. But it certainly won't clear at all. At the end of the day, even though there's been a significant amount of money pumped into helping people deal with the cost of living, it's only going to deal with some of the increase. It's not going to clear it off. People are not going to be as well off or as comfortable this year and next year as they were this time 12 months ago. Nice. Um, if, if that was the case, with the cost of living going as it was, with the rate of inflation, if we, the pension went up by €12, Euro, which on paper is a significant increase. Like The most we've seen in the last number of years has been a fiver every year. Um, but if the pension was to keep up with the rate of inflation and the cost of living, it should have gone up by 23 euro, possibly 28 euro. It's gone up by 12. Yeah, certainly it will help, but it'll only help deal with some of the increase. At the end of the day, people are still going to be suffering. They're still going to feel the pinch in their pockets, and we're still getting calls from members who are telling us that they're they're leaving they're leaving it later and later in the year to start putting the heat on. Are we in for a fright? Uh, is it to get worse? I mean, I think we're being told it's to get worse, but uh, to what extent are, are the bills going to increase? Yeah, well, I mean, as, as I said, we've seen them almost double at this stage. Um, we We can see in the UK... The, the absolute panic on older people, on pensioners in the UK, as their bills have gone up by almost £2,500 sterling over the course of a year, uh, that, that is a tremendous amount of money for somebody on a limited income with no capacity to earn any additional income to, to have to deal with. So mm. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to put in place additional measures simply because of our connectivity with the European Union, that we'll be able to defray some of the costs that the UK have seen. Okay. But realistically, we know that the people are starting to feel the pinch and it's not over yet. And Peter, and you, know, while, you, you know the advertising strap line, when they're gone, they're gone. Uh, and that would seem to be one of the big concerns about the one-off measures. Uh, when they're paid out, that's it. There's no more and what are people going to do next year? That seems to be one of the concerns about the €12 increase. Yeah, 
it's a big deal and the ESRI last week immediately after the budget were very clear on this um, it's not a progressive budget without those one-off measures and because we don't have the security of knowing they're coming next year it's going to be it's going to be quite problematic uh, you know there were a lot of choices made in this budget they've decided to go down the route of one-off measures and at the same time they've given a tax break to people that really it benefits it benefits everybody who's paying tax of course but it certainly benefits the rich even more so look mm. that's a judgment by this government it's a value statement by this government okay. they've decided where their priorities lie and it's on easing the burden for those who probably don't need it as much as those who are on social welfare payments single right. parents pensioners Peter, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's Peter Cavada, Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The National Women's Council says contraception should be universally available to remove all age restrictions on the basis of need and consultation with a doctor. Let's hear more about this. Alana Ryan is uh, the National Women's Council spokesperson on health. And a very good morning to you, Alana, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, Tell us uh, why you think young girls... uh, who are not considered to be of the age of consent should be entitled to contraception. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Um, So the announcement in Budget 2023 that there is going to be an expansion of the universal free contraception was really welcome. And it's something that we at the National Women's Council have been campaigning for for a long time. But um, we are concerned at the suggestion that there would be a lower age limit for this. And we think the best approach would be to follow the lead of the NHS, which has been providing free contraception since the 1970s, and where doctors are able to provide contraception based on following of strict um, guidelines to young people um, where it's appropriate and where there's no safeguarding or um, child protection concerns. And that's because it's a harm reduction approach. It's an acknowledgement that some adolescents will be sexually active and it is far better that they are protected against sexually transmitted infections and against the risk of unplanned pregnancy. So that's why we would follow the NHS on this one, who are far more experienced in terms of uh, the rollout of contraception and who have been doing it for a lot longer. Okay, Uh, and uh, you're saying no age limit, 12, 13 years of age, uh, that girls could go to their doctor uh, and uh, be prescribed uh, contraception? Well, ultimately, um, all medical professionals have to follow very strict guidelines on this, um, and that's the case in the NHS as well. Mm. So the doctors could only give contraception if they were confident that uh, the adolescent had uh, full information and was able to give free and informed consent and understood what was happening. In Ireland, if a child is under 15, they absolutely have to do the notification to TUSLA. But doctors are well aware of that and would follow those procedures. But ultimately, we do know that there are going to be some young people who are age 15 or 16 and who are going to be sexually active. And ultimately, this is about creating the space for that teenager to attend their GP and say, actually, you know, this is the position I'm in. Mm. And for the doctor to have a conversation saying, are you sure you're ready? Is it the right time? Can I suggest you might hold away for a while? And ultimately, um, if the young person is adamant Mm -hmm. that they want to continue, the GP is is then able to give them the the correct medical information and protect them against um, unplanned pregnancy. I I don't 
imagine that there's any difference uh, in terms of when it's uh, appropriate to use contraception. If it's appropriate uh, to use contraception uh, when you're 17 or 18, uh, I'm sure all the same reasons apply if you're 15 or 16. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, another um, point to make here is that actually the contraceptive pill is used for a range of conditions. So um, we know it's also part of the treatment and management of endometriosis, of polycystic ovary syndrome. Uh, Some young women need it for acne. And uh, this is part of kind of a measure towards universal health care. So Ultimately, um, it's a really welcome step, but I don't think that having a lower age limit makes sense, particularly when this is really um, a medical conversation, which is best had between the the teenager and the doctor. Okay, but is there a legal contradiction in all of this because of the age of consent? And uh, if a young girl is having Uh, sexual relations uh, before she reaches 17, uh, it's considered to be statutory rape. Uh, So can you facilitate that as a state? Well, ultimately, um, we provide free abortion care um, across the board. So at the moment, a doctor is able to provide um, a teenager with an abortion uh, if they are under the age of sexual consent. So if they are 16, uh, there has to be, there doesn't need to be any involvement of an adult. Um, if they're 15 uh, it, and the young person chooses not to involve the parents, the doctor can still offer the abortion um, provided they've made a full assessment uh, and, you know, in the knowledge that it's exceptional circumstances. Um, if they're under 15, they do need to make that notification to TUSLA. But our position is really if we're providing free abortion care across uh, adolescents because there is a need there and no young young adolescent should be in the position where they have to carry a child if they um, themselves are a child we should absolutely be preventing the risk of crisis pregnancy and that means creating the space for doctors to support um, adolescents by provision of contraception. Okay, some people will think it's giving underage minors a green light to have sex a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Well, you know, I would really disagree with that, to be honest. I think public policy has to be responsive to the needs of young people. And it is a really small minority um, who are sexually active at that age, but they are there. And ultimately, as a society, we should be determining our reproductive and sexual health uh, based on the reality and not on an ideal state where we would um, prefer to, to close our eyes and not acknowledge that there are some teenagers who are sexually active. And I think it's really important that the space is created for those kinds of conversations to take place in the GP surgeries where the doctor can maybe have a conversation that a young person can't have with their parents and, you know, say, are you sure that this is the right time? Is it, is it really uh, the right moment for you? And if the young person is adamant that it is, that the doctor gives them the full um, health advice and range of support and that the risk of that teenage girl becoming pregnant uh, is, is mitigated by provision of the free contraception and uh, indeed the prevention of the STIs. Okay, does that not contradict the logic of having an age of consent because the logic as I understand it of having an age of consent is that if you're below that uh, you uh, don't have the wherewithal to consent to sexual relations Uh, you're not mature enough uh, to agree to have sex. So I mean the age of consent is very important and in Ireland at 17, in England at 16. Um, but this is this is really about um, sexual health and um, a responsive policy to what we know is happening mm. in some cases. So, you know, I think we need to separate out uh, the issue around whether the age of consent is appropriate. I think it absolutely is. But this is about recognising that some young people will be sexually active with their peers Um, below the age of consent and it's ensuring that if they are the space is created for them to speak to their GP about this Uh, particularly given you know many young people won't be wanting to speak to their parents about it and they may not be getting accurate information from peers or online so but it's 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 fuzzy it seems fuzzy to me uh, Alana uh, and I'm not suggesting uh, it's right or or wrong but it, it seems as though Uh, the message would be confusing. You'd be saying to 15-year-olds, let's say, you're not old enough to decide to have sex unless you go to a doctor and convince the doctor that you've decided yourself to have sex. Uh, That's uh, as clear as mud, is it not? No, I don't think so, to be honest. You know, I think that this is really about the doctors being able to have a frank and honest conversation with the young person and for that space to be created where Mm. the doctor can remind the young person, look, the age of consent is 17 and that's there for a reason. Now, you're telling me that you feel that you're at a point um, in a relationship with a peer who's, who's the same age Uh, that it is going to turn into sexual activity. Are you sure that this is the right time? And if that Mm. young person is adamant, and we know that there are many cases where teenagers do things Mm. that uh, actually are probably against their best interest. But the the contradiction, Alana, is is that the age of consent says that that young person isn't capable of making that decision. But Michael, would you rather a situation where the young person goes to their GP and says, I'm going to be... um, engaging in sexual activity as a 15-year-old with my peer and the GP says, well, you know, you've told me about this but I can't actually give you the um, support and advice and guidance which would enable you to do that safely. No, I wouldn't. Uh, I think that's I, the difference. I, I wouldn't, to be completely honest with you, Alana, but at the same time then you have... Uh 
this conflict uh, in the messages uh, that are, are coming from the state uh, and their legal messages. Uh, you're not uh, capable of having sex, uh, but you're capable of getting contraception, deciding to use contraception to have sex. Uh, and then that brings you to another very, very complicated uh, question, which is about the age of consent. So to clear up the fuzz, if you like, you bring down the age of consent so you can have sex uh, legally at 16 or 15. And then if you do that, uh, you're into a situation where you can just have sex, not necessarily with one of your peers, somebody the same age. You can have sex with anybody and that's permissible uh, in the eyes of the state. No, I mean, this isn't about us advocating for a change to the age of consent. It's more a recognition that there will be some young people who engage in sexual activity under the age of consent and ensuring that if it is um, with a peer and there aren't safeguarding concerns Mm. there, that the the GP is empowered to provide them with the contraception to do so safely. And without consultation with parents? Like, I mean, ultimately, the the really important point here is that if there are any safeguarding concerns, as in any medical Mm. uh, consultation, that GP would absolutely make a referral to TUSLA um, around uh, the the situation and ensure the young person gets the support. But ultimately, the young person may never have come forward to the GP in the first place if, if we don't. Uh, if if we continue to to mm. suggest the scheme would only begin at seventeen, and I would much rather that the space is created for young people to come forward and for trusted adults who can provide them with sound guidance uh, to to be uh, available and responsive. Mm. Uh, against uh, the parents' will. Well, I mean, this is uh, the policy in the NHS in England, where ultimately. Uh, if the uh, GP is confident that the young person is fully informed um, and able to make that decision and has, uh, you know, kind of understood the information which has been given to them, that parents don't necessarily have to be told. Um, and, you know, this isn't uh, something which is an outlier in, in the Netherlands as well. Contraception is free for all under 21. And actually only, uh, you know, only does the cost begin after 21. And that's because they're really trying to, to stop um, and reduce teenage pregnancy rates and, and abortion rates. So I think in Ireland we have a decision here where we're at a crossroads in terms of our uh, reproductive health and our free contraception care. And I think it would be a mistake to, to introduce this this rigid 17 cut-off because it, it closes the door to those conversations with the GP um, for mm. for adolescents who, who really probably could be in need of this support. OK, okay but, but, but sorry, just uh, children can go to the GP now and get uh, contraceptive prescribed, can't they? Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, with their parents, yeah. yes, but mm. but the issue is the free contraception. So okay. you know, ultimately, yeah. okay. most fifteen-year-olds are not going to have the money yeah. okay. uh, to do this. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's a valid point. Yeah. Okay, Alana, we leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Alana Ryan is uh, the spokesperson on women's health with uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, uh, spokesperson for the Minister for Health, uh, Stephen Donnelly, uh, told us on Friday that it would be inappropriate for the Minister to comment on the review of uh, the decision to close the emergency department at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan 
until the review was presented to the Minister and he's had time to assess it. Uh, of course, uh, that uh, review has uh, concluded uh, and the review team are to send a report and recommendations to the Minister maybe in six or eight weeks' time. Uh, so the Minister has once again refused to talk to LMFM about Our Lady's Hospital in Navan because, as I've just read for you, the Minister says it would be inappropriate to be talking about Navan on the radio. Uh, until this review has come uh, to him and he's had time to assess it. Uh, apparently, though, <laughs> this is this is uh, uh, another um, part of the saga. Uh, the minister's been on the radio talking about Navin. Let's speak uh, to the head of uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign, chairperson of uh, that group, founder and leader of N2 TD for Mead West, Peter Tobin. Uh, good morning to you, Peter Tobin. Uh, he was on News Talk, was he? I, I, I think I was away at the time. I certainly didn't hear this interview, but he was talking about Navin, was he, on the radio? Yeah, so uh, yeah. the Fianna Fáil Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, while refusing to speak to LMFM at any stage over the last six to eight months on this issue, uh, was happy to uh, present himself to the Pat Kenny Show on News Talk. Um, and in that interview, he actually echoed exactly what the Save Navin Hospital campaign has been saying for the last six months. Go away. Was that, was, was that appropriate? It's um, well, if, if <laughs> it does show different standards, because if it's inappropriate to talk to LFM, it obviously should be inappropriate to talk to anybody else. Um, the local I, radio station for the hospital, like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel what, what's happened here is that LMFM have taken a very, let's say, forensic um, look at the whole process of what's happening to the hospital in Navan. Um, and it's that type of interview the minister is running away from. Um, you know, he, he's happy to talk generalities on a national radio station because, you know, he won't be asked the same tough questions, and that's the truth of it. Um, it's, you know, the people have a right to see questions put to the ministers who are governing them. In a transparent democracy, the people who make decisions should be able to back them up, you know, under under questioning from uh, local journalists. Uh, and, and in that particular interview with, with News Talk, he actually says, I was never going to stand over a situation whereby patient risk was simply transferred from one hospital to another because that simply doesn't work for the patient. And he could have taken that out of a press statement released by the Save Navin Hospital campaign at any stage over the last nine months. Indeed, when the hospital was at the very edge of existence, the A&E, it was to be closed at the 30th of June. Uh, that is exactly what we in the hospital campaign were saying. And we're proven right, because if you actually look at Navin Hospital A&E during just the last week, medics have told me that Navin A&E has never been as busy. Um, that 105 people presented on one given day into Navin A&E. Well over half of those would have to go to Drogheda if Navin was closed. There were per- 13 people on trolleys mm. in Navin A&E in, in last week. And the MAU, which was closed, is now reopened to make space for the extra patients. Um, okay. So med- 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 medics have told you this privately, obviously, because uh, they're not allowed to say anything publicly. They've been gagged. Uh, did the minister say anything uh, about gagging the HSE uh, when he was talking to uh, a radio station that's not the local radio station? Well, it feels like the minister's gagging himself for some reason in, in relation to this on this local issue. Mm, but it's, it's, it's interesting as well that it's not just the senior medics in the HSE who feel gagged. Letters have gone to pretty much every staff member in the hospital in recent times saying that they're not to talk 
publicly on what's going on in the hospital. I've spoken to senior clinicians in there who completely disagree with the narrative that the HSE is putting out, which says that the A&E is not fit for purpose. And they say they want to take on more patients and they're not being allowed to do so uh, by the government. So now that we have this sham review, uh, which, is, uh, which is over. So, you know, the review is carried out by the people who made the initial decision. And Michael, you're a long time uh, in, in journalism. Have you ever seen a review or an investigation where the people who made the initial decision actually carry out the investigation into that initial decision and where, you know, there's a different result? You're guaranteed to have the same results if the same people pretty much are actually carrying out the review of the decision. Okay, that's true to a large extent, but there's 70 members of uh, the team and uh, some of them, including uh, Dr Ian Cunahan in the Lourdes Hospital, would be one of uh, the naysayers. Uh, Dr Seamus McManaman would take a a position similar to yours, uh, which is that resources should be put into Navin and build up. But as he says, the status quo can't continue. And uh, I think that's been very clear as well, that there have been a number of close calls in the hospital and that that has been outlined to the minister but it it seems the minister is going to sit on his hands knowing that there's the risk of unnecessary death in the hospital because the hospital isn't equipped to deal with the type of patients that it it, uh, will uh, be charged with uh, the care of Uh, and it may only be a small number of patients but any life matters and the outcomes of patients matters and poor outcomes or death are as a consequence of an under equipped emergency department, something has to be done. Either, either you close it as the HSE says, or you build it up as you say. Okay, so for, first of all, there are 900 consultants missing in the whole hospital system in the country. There is, I, I, I would say, very few uh, hospital departments who are fully e- equipped at the moment. If you look at the mental health situation in this country, you know, the, the, the Kerry Cam's scandal showed that we had literally specialist organizations not having a specialist consultant in delivering those services, that we had a doctor who had no training in psychiatric services delivering psychiatric services uh, to patients. We meant to have 100 CAMS teams in the country. We have 70. And in those 70, many of them are under 50% actually okay. staffed. I know, but so, two wrongs don't make so, a, a right. And you can't continue to preside over an unsafe situation. And <laughs> undoubtedly, uh, the minister's efforts uh, to uh, take the toxicity out of uh, this politically and usurp the authority of uh, the HSE has led to the resignation of Paul Reid. It's also led to this gagging order because he doesn't want them telling people the risk that they're at. Uh, But the point remains the same. You you, you don't continue with the status quo. You don't continue with a situation that is unsafe. You take action of one sort or the other. You either close it down or you build it up. We have never looked for the status quo to remain. And and, in actual fact, just before COVID hits this uh, this country, we actually held a public meeting in the Newgrange in a hotel, not for the, the, the protection of the A&E that, at that stage, but for the proper investment in the A&E so that it would function uh, to the highest standards and keep people safe. That there's no doubt about it uh, that we want to see increased investment in it. And that's why we were so frustrated that this sham review didn't include what would be necessary investment-wise to bring Navinani up to the highest standards in the country. Again, we had Minister Damon Inger said it would, and it didn't. Um, and, and, and that's the really frustrating element of this. So the government hasn't approached this uh, situation with an objective eye. They haven't said, okay, what is the best decision here? We'll investigate it. 
and the result will tell us the best decision. What they've done is they've hardwired closure into a review process, and now that review process is 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 closed and is finished. Mm. And we have a situation now where it's, it's likely now that the minister will make a decision of some level, I would say, um, you know, in, in a number of months. Yeah. Well, the review team's job is to recommend how to close it safely. Uh, so the, Exactly. The review team was given the job of how to close it safely, but the elected representative's job was to how to deliver health services safely. And that would have included inclusion of... Um, what, would, what it would take to make Navin A&E safe. I actually, listen, the strategy of the Save Navin Hospital campaign has been clear. Investment in the services. And when the services came under pressure, our objectives were to keep it open beyond Christmas because our view was uh, we would have a new Minister for Health uh, in, in the new year. There's no doubt about that in my view. And that we might have a better ear and a better chance convincing a new Minister for Health to invest in the services in the future. But can I, want, I want to say this, and this is really important. Navin a is hammered pressure-wise with regards to people going into it, and so has Drogheda. The HSE, oh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign, uh, a, a, a thank you in relation to what we did to keep that service open in Navin, because if it wasn't there at the moment, Drogheda would be in a jock at the, uh, currently. And, you know, it is just so frustrating to, to, to see the HSE being so destructive of our services. It was, it's only because of the the people power actions of the Save Navin Hospital campaign that we have at least two services being provided in this region uh, where there'd only be one under enormous, and I would say life-threatening pressure. And next protest is in Dublin on Friday week. Yeah, so, so in other words, we're not leaving this be. We're, we're, we're seeing this to the end. Uh, and the Save Navin Hospital campaign will picket the HSE head office uh, from uh, Friday on the 14th of October. And the picket will start at 12 uh, midday and will go, uh, go on until uh, 3. And we'll have these pickets on and off until we have a HSC that actually starts to realise the damage that it's doing here. Uh, so I would encourage people who can, who are maybe not working on that Friday to contact us in the Save Navin Hospital campaign and commit to joining that picket because um, this issue is a life and death issue. We cannot give up on this. It would be so detrimental to the county in terms of our life and health if we let this go. Um, and I, I think we should be you know, really you know, um, confident now that our actions have made a significant difference. Many people have had their heads down over the last few months and said, you know, we can't, it's, it's a done deal. But actually the opposite is the case. Our actions has led to the protection of that service so far and people should get more involved, stand up for what they're entitled to and join the picket on the 14th. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you uh, for joining us as always. Peter Tobin, leader and founder of uh, the AIN2 party, a TD for Meath West and chair of uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has proven to be a wonderful war for many energy providers who are seeing extraordinary profits, uh, indeed. Uh, Profits uh, which uh, could be described to be immoral because they're profiting on the back of hardship. Uh, However, that is about to change with a levy of 33% on profits that are more than 20% higher than would ordinarily be the average. Uh, This is one of uh, the measures uh, that the 27 European energy ministers uh, agreed at an extraordinary energy summit in Brussels on Friday. A windfall energy tax and 
revenue cap uh, for the year 2022 and or 2023, as the case may be. Stephen Matthews is the Green Party's spokesperson for planning and local government, a TD for Wicklow and also chair of the Housing Committee. And a very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. And Indeed, the Minister for Environment and your party leader, Eamon Ryan, said that this could result in anything between one to two billion euro for this country. Michael, good morning and uh, thank you for the invite to come on. Yeah, it's an important measure in Europe that was agreed on Friday by the uh, EU energy ministers and it shows that sort of a uh, united front in, in Europe to assist people who are really struggling with energy bills and we know this is across uh, home users and across businesses. Uh, essentially, the deal consists of three sort of parts to what was agreed and it's a very complex issue, Michael, and there's still further details to come on us. But essentially what was agreed was a cap on the excess revenues generated by companies who haven't been affected by gas prices. Uh, so we're talking like solar or hydro or, or wind uh, generators of electricity. They haven't been impacted by gas prices. Yes, they're getting a very high uh, uh, income for the electricity that they sell. There'll also be a levy then on the surplus profits of the fossil fuel producers. So uh, as we know, uh, the, the war in Russia, as you mentioned in the introduction there, has really driven the price of gas up across Europe and every country in Europe is suffering from this and every user of electricity in Europe is suffering. So um, there will be a levy on those surplus profits, as you mentioned, a minimum of 33%. Mm. And then the other measure, which is part of this, is the energy reduction agreement as well. So what's been agreed is a 5% mandatory reduction in energy and a 10% voluntary reduction. And that also affects the price of gas because at peak times, you've got to bring in the, the gas um, generation. And that's the, gas, that's the electricity that comes in at the higher cost. So if you can reduce the usage, especially at peak, it'll also have an impact on prices as well. So it's a, it's a, we've seen at, at national level in the budget last week where the government has acted to help people through the, the energy crisis with the uh, electricity credits and the increase in fuel allowance, etc. We know people are very worried about the bills arriving. What I want to say clearly to people is that nobody should be afraid to turn on the heat this winter. Nobody should be afraid to turn on the light. The supports are there in place at, at national level through the budget we've introduced because there'll be a, a €200 Euro energy uh, electricity credit paid in November, January and March to coincide with the billing periods. And now at EU level, on a united level, the EU uh, have come together. And the money generated mm. from this EU agreement will feed back into to help people pay for electricity and energy, business users, home users, elderly mm. vulnerable. Do, do we know what that means? Uh, I mean, we, are we talking about uh, further credits of €200, Euro, that type of approach? All of those measures are there for consideration. We introduced that legislation last year to ensure that we could pay that first energy, our electricity credit that was paid out last year. The um, legislation is in place now to help us to do that uh, quickly. And that's why we'll be able to do those three now over those set periods mm. that I mentioned. But you expect more uh, than three, I suppose, is what the question is. Well, what we see from this EU agreement is this agreement that was reached on Friday uh, is that this could generate somewhere between one to two billion mm. uh, for Ireland. And that's at the lower end. That's a very conservative estimate. That's, all, that's going to depend, one, on uh, you know, where gas prices go. Uh, we, we obviously saw the, the, the Nord Stream pipeline 
completely disrupted. So there's a whole lot of this conflict in Europe and there's a whole lot of different factors are driving the price of gas. And it depends how long this conflict goes on for now. And we don't know how long it's going to go on for. So that's why we've got to be prudent. That's why we, we put money in reserve, in the National Reserve Fund. And that's why we entered this agreement in Europe so that we can have these measures in place. OK, but does it, people through. does it have to be passed on to households uh, or, or could the government decide to build a, a hospital with it or something like that? Sorry, the the, the, well, the, 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 back, the, oh, yeah, sorry, the, the yeah, money from uh, the, the European levy. Uh, yeah, is it ring fence? Yeah. So, I mean, what government has done over the last eighteen months is, you know, we, we that two point four billion for we injected in, you know, into people's pockets through extra payments and extra allowances it, because of the issues that were there. We've seen in this budget we've made those allowances as well. So I would have uh, no concerns that the extra revenue we generate from this EU agreement will be used to reduce energy costs for people, and that's where it will be directed. It will be passed on, in other words. That would be the intention. That's why this has been taken, because energy, the increase in energy costs is not just okay. affecting people's bills, it affects businesses as well. And we introduced the um, supports for businesses as well that have been affected by the increasing energy costs. That was introduced in the last budget. So all these measures will be used to assist people through this winter. And we're likely looking at next winter as well, because we don't know when this conflict is going to end. And it's this conflict is what's causing energy prices to increase at such a rapid rate. Okay, but there, by the sounds of things, your response is a little bit vague. Uh, There's no real obligation on the government to pass on uh, this uh, windfall to households. Well, the government and its track record uh, over the last 18 months has been shown to put 2.4 billion. Oh, I know. I'm not not saying otherwise. We've passed an 11 billion budget. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at our track record, the trajectory the speed and the agility the government has acted with, um, I would say, is, I'd be quite confident to say the money that we okay. generate from this will be there to assist people okay. with their electricity bills. Co- confidence is one thing, but the answer obviously is yes, there is no obligation on the government. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you're right uh, that the government uh, will act in good faith. Uh, but uh, we're hearing a, a lot of uh, concern today about pay-as-you-go customers uh, as well, uh, who... Uh, may be cut off uh, before they go to the community welfare officer. H- how uh, expensive are the bills going to get? What kind of increases are, are we looking at? Well, we've seen the increases over the last couple of months. All the energy providers have been putting up their uh, prices because the price of gas has just spiralled. You know, it's gone up 300% or whatever. It's gone up massively. Um, and... You mentioned people on pay-as-you-go um, were vulnerable to, the, to those increases, but there's been a number of measures taken there. Um, the CRU, which is the body who is responsible for the um, regulation of utilities, um, is going to promote the vulnerable register. It is promoting the vulnerable register. So that's people who are vulnerable and need electricity supply won't be cut off at all. There's a debt management uh, process being put in place and there will be no disconnections where people engage in that debt management process. So its engagement is really important there. And then the debt repayment plans, up to now, if you were on a pay-as-you-go and you had an outstanding debt, 20% of what you put onto your meter would have gone against the debt. That's been reduced down now so that if you put €20 onto your pay-as-you-go meter, only 2%, only €2 would be taken the debt repayment so that you know majority of the money will go through to your uh, electricity as you require it so there's a lot of measures that have been put in place there um, to protect all users of electricity okay uh, there's significant concern obviously then uh, amongst uh, the business community as bills soar and continue to soar 
Yeah, and there was measures introduced in the budget last week um, where um, business users, the significant support there have been put in place for business users that have seen energy costs increase. And they've all seen it. I was, in a, I was speaking to a local publican recently and he said, you know, he's, he's closed down the kitchen. He's not doing food anymore because of the, ex- you know, there was massive costs there mm. in gas and electricity. So that has been introduced now. And uh, that can, that's a payment of up to 10,000 per month there mm. for uh, SMEs and small businesses. Uh, it depends on how much your energy use has gone up and you have to be able to show that. Okay, but the estimate at this stage, you say, is conservative, and that estimate is uh, that uh, this levy will result in between one and two billion for Ireland. Yeah, I mean that, that's significant. That's a substantial amount of, of money to be it able sure to bring is, yeah. in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we don't have massive fossil fuel producers in this country. The only one we really have is carb. And each government to be able to apply about 33%. I think that's the minimum levy that can be applied to that. So we'd have to wait and see what the uh, accounts filed by Corabar this year to see what that levy may be. Uh, but the cap on the excess revenues is really significant. The, the cap being discussed is 180 megawatt hour, 180 euro per megawatt hour. Uh, we'll know the detail on that later this year. But that would significantly, I think, that would bring in a, a quite a but a high revenue if we, if we uh, cap it at that. But, I mean, $2 billion, that's the lower end of the estimate. Mm. Um, it could go up, and it will be used to support people, to help people with energy costs. And the government is committed to doing that. We've seen it in the budget. We've seen it now in this agreement in Europe. And, again, I just want to reiterate to people, because I know people are very yeah, concerned yeah. across the entire country, across the counties, the means, etc., uh, not to be afraid to turn on the heat and the lights. The supports are there and uh, also just to be uh, cognizant of the energy reduction agreement where we try to reduce our energy at peak time as well. That's really going to help us manage with the um, energy crunch that we really have at the moment. Okay, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Stephen Matthews, Green Party TD, his party spokesperson for planning and local government and chair of the Housing Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming uh, to us uh, this morning, Eric Cuthbert in Dundalk says, the housing crisis is never going to be solved in this country if so many people keep coming into the country. Uh, Tony in County Loud says, your points to Minister Charlie McConnell earlier on in the programme about MICA uh, were quite correct. Uh, Tony says, most of these houses are to be rebuilt, uh, but they were private bills and private deals between a builder and its client. The government has no part to play in such a transaction and should not be picking up the bill for those situations. When I was looking for a mortgage, uh, Tony says he had to supply an engineer's report for the building in question, which should also cover this situation. And most insulting of all is uh, that it appears uh, there's no appreciation of uh, the generosity of uh, the state and the taxpayer in this matter, and all to secure the future votes of TDs in the area. If this involved only a dozen or so individuals like myself, it would never have been entertained by the government, says Tony in County Loud, who 
appears to have little sympathy for uh, people whose houses are falling down because of mica. Uh, Paddy Duffy says Fianna Fáil is destined to become a small irrelevant party as a result of supporting Fine Gael from after the 2016 election and then going into government with them and proving that there's not a cigarette paper difference between them which we always knew anyway says Paddy in his message to us uh, this morning. David is in Drogheda and David was on the phone he says I've voted for Fianna Fáil in the past but the problem I find now is that there's very little difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael echoing I suppose what Paddy said in the last comment he says I'm happy enough with this budget overall but I'm very angry that more progress is not being made in relation to the housing crisis in the country there's not enough social housing Uh, being built and it's not being treated as an emergency which I feel it should be. The price of rent is just unaffordable for so many people. So where are people expected to live? Maybe Sinn Féin would do a better job. Maybe they wouldn't, says David in his message there. Thanks uh, for that, David. Uh, Well, housing uh, undoubtedly it continues to be a massive issue. The biggest and most important social housing, social issue in the country is housing, according uh, to the Taoiseach. And indeed, he spent some time talking about the crisis in his leader's speech on Saturday. Housing is the single most important social issue facing our country. Access to a suitable and secure home is the foundation and the safeguard of national solidarity, social and economic progress and community cohesion. Within just a matter of months of entering government, we developed, resourced and began implementing an innovative new strategy for action across all sectors entitled Housing for All. To address the housing crisis, we have to take a range of actions, not just one or two. We will deliver more social homes, more affordable homes, more private homes and more rental homes. And because of this, Housing for All is the first time such a strategy addresses the full range of housing needs. And although the pandemic stopped a lot of building activity for a time, the strategy is starting to make an impact. The help to buy and first home schemes are in place for first time buyers. The Land Development Agency is finalising contracts to deliver thousands of new homes on state owned lands. And we have begun a new era of building social homes at scale. Our action on housing has not been felt by everyone yet, I know. But by every measure, home building and renovations are up. The only way to tackle the unacceptable homelessness in our country is to urgently move forward these plans. But there are immediate actions which are being taken. And that's why we're putting major new resources into working with those on the front line. And we will also continue to take action to help people in private rental accommodation. This week we announced new tax credits worth €1,000 for every renter. And that's uh, the Taoiseach uh, speaking on Saturday in his leader speech uh, to the Fianna Fáil Ordesh about that very important issue which so many of you seem dismayed about. Uh, Paddy, back in touch with us, uh, asking us about the €200 credit on our bills. Is it carried forward uh, until all of the €600 have been used up? Yes, I believe so, Paddy, that uh, the credit stays on your bill. Uh, Margaret in touch with us about uh, the hospital saying the HSE would be better off reading the latest report from a meeting uh, 
of emergency departments task force uh, instead of, of going by a report uh, regarding our ladies hospital that's over 10 years old the ED report said it would be hell on earth this year for both patients and clinical staff if there's a bad flu stroke covid season if our ladies hospitals emergency department goes the people of Meath will be left languishing in other emergency departments for hours maybe even days uh, dr hickey uh, summed it up perfectly. He said, emergency departments are warehouses for admitted patients. How right he is, uh, says Margaret. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Fergal Hickey uh, of the ED Task Force. Thank you very much indeed, Margaret, as always for that. Uh, another text uh, from somebody who says, years ago we had a maze in Navin, Navin Shopping Centre. Uh, I remember my children playing there. He says, uh, visited the centre on Saturday and now they have a maze outside. The difficulty trying to get to the cash machine and enter the shopping centre from the post office was a joke. Can anyone tell me who's destroying the town with graffiti? Uh, We're supposed to be upgrading uh, Navin, uh, but it's been turned into a dump with graffiti everywhere. People of Navin, please speak up about the real issues in our our town, says our caller. Thank you indeed uh, for that. I just wanted to mention it as well. It was a fascinating uh, meeting in Shannon on Friday uh, last week on the constitutional future of the island of Ireland. And this resulted in a debate, if you like, about a united Ireland and some very strong views from many, many young people. Uh, indeed, we might hear some of those views over the coming days and weeks uh, because there were some very impressive speakers uh, who spoke in the Shannon on Friday. But we'll hear just one of them today, a, a local young man who you made, may have heard on LMFM's news over the weekend, uh, Connor McCauley, who's 20 years of age, uh, and he comes from Mornington. This is what he had to say to Shannon Aaron. The future of Ireland should be an all-inclusive one where community surroundings are adapted to suit people's needs so they can live and work independently. Equality on our island of Ireland is a must. Fully accessible transport throughout Ireland, not being left on a roadside because an inaccessible coach turns up or left in a train station because it's unmanned or the person you booked 24 hours in advance hasn't shown up. Recently, our government in the South invested in 41 new rail car carriages that disabled people can still not get on independently and will still have to book 24 hours in advance. Suitable accessible housing. One in eight in the island of Ireland have a disability and housing should be adapted to their needs. Local authorities need to include community support systems. Personal assistance is necessary to support living and inclusion in the community. People are also on waiting lists for social housing for years. This needs to change. Youth services should be made all-inclusive so no one feels isolated or alone, as mental health, I feel, is a disability in itself. We need more access to these. Hospital services are severely delayed and diagnosis of conditions are taking so long that it delays the supports to be put in place to help somebody with their disability. If there is a service available through the NHS that isn't available through the HSE or vice versa, we all should be able to access it on either side of the country. Counselling should be made more available and quicker to access also for people with disabilities. In my own experience, I have been sent appointments up a flight of stairs at buildings that the HSE use. I've had to ring to change to suitable venues that are further away. 
The government, when introducing PUP, said the cost of living is approximately €350 a week and rising. Yet they expect people to live on a disability allowance of just €220 or even less in the north of Ireland. Carers' allowance should not be means-tested as they are either underpaid or not paid at all. Most are carers not through choice but circumstances. When education stops, so does personal assistant hours and people with disabilities are left fighting yet again when they need their PA most in order to help them live and work independently. Workplaces should be more accessible and inclusive for people with disabilities and they should be able to get easy access to PAs in order for them to contribute back to society. These laws should be more, there should be more incentives for companies to take on people with disabilities. I hope that, that the laws that have been implemented in recent years are put into practice so that all the people of Ireland, regardless of disability, religion, sex or nationality, are treated equally with respect we all deserve. 20-year-old Conor McCauley speaking in Shannon on Friday. Conor is from Mornington. He's a member of the National Youth Council of Ireland and concludes our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.